0: If you'd like to mark the Song of Encouragement, it'll be number 263. 263. Thank you, Dale. I appreciate those songs. Makes you want to go home to heaven, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but uh, I'm tired of 2020. Yeah, I'm sure most of us are as well. Um, I want us to continue tonight in our discussion that Wes has so eloquently started, and that is our discussion on treasure. This month we're focusing in on treasures and those things that are estimable, those things that we care about. And I want us to really narrow it down tonight to Jesus' words in a particular instance. If I were to ask you what your greatest treasure is here below, that is of a material nature... Uh, Many of you might give us a list of things that you value. And just as Brian Everett talked about in his uh, discourse this morning, uh, it might be something that has sentimental attachment to it. By the way, I'd like to see those shotguns, Brian. Um, But it might have that sentimental attachment to it because of where we received it. Uh, There might be other things that we have of a material nature that remind us of a certain instance in our life has the memories attached, the feelings attached? Uh, mom, mothers, you might hold on to the little booties of your children that they wore when they came home from the hospital. It might be in your scrapbook. You might see the little onesie that has their footprint on it. Those things matter to us because there's some sentiment attached. In every material good, I would say that there is at least some intrinsic and sentimental value. But if I were to ask you what the most important thing was that you had that was not of a material nature, what would you say? We might then turn our attention to the loved ones, maybe our family members, that, uh, and the relationships that we have developed that are so close and so near. But if I were to ask a child of God what their most important treasure was, no doubt, if we're thinking correctly, it would be the Christ. And what He means to every one of us because we appreciate the gravity of the sacrifice that He made for us. In the book of Matthew, we read of our Lord telling two parables, really superficially addressing the emphasis one places on the value of material goods. But I want us to know that it's not the context of damnation or rebuke, but rather really a revealing truth or statement about the nature or characteristic of people. And the first is in reference that we have to a hid field. I want us tonight to really look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. Here, Jesus tells a parable amongst many others, but there's two here that stand out that I think deserve and merit our attention, especially when it comes to this discussion of treasure. But it's the parable of the hid treasure and the pearl of great price, beginning in verse 44. Jesus the Christ there says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field. The which, when a man has found, he hides, and for the joy thereof goes and sells all that he has, and buys that field. Now, before we get into some meaning of this, I want us to understand, why is there treasure in a field? Well, it was the custom in the ancient East at times to divide up a portion of your goods and bury it. In a location that only you know, and so maybe a third of your goods would be liquidated. That would be in a monetary fashion. You would use that for your everyday expenditures. And then another third you might take and you might put it in a little more difficult to manage, it would be jewels. And so you could carry those, but they were of great value and great worth, and so you didn't have to carry as much coinage along with you. And then the other third, individuals, they might take if there were ensuing changes in the dynasty, if you couldn't hang on to your wealth or didn't want it in your home, you took it and you buried it in a location that was only known to you so that you could go back and retrieve it when the danger had passed or whenever uh, you might feel you needed to access some of that wealth or that monetary gain. So there was not necessarily the bank that you and I would have. It would be a chest that might uh, find itself buried in a field. And here what Jesus is talking about is that man who all of a sudden finds a treasure hidden in a field. It was not initially his, and, and so what he does is he sells all that he has in order to buy the field because of what is in the field. Now, the Jewish law did not make any concern about those things that were left in a field after a person was made, and we're not talking about the uh, deceitful acquiring of goods. What we're talking about is an individual who comes up with unbelievable worth. Now, look at what he says, though. It says he hides it. So he found this treasure in the field, and then he goes and hides it. Is this an evil hiding? I, I think about the man in the parable of the talents, and you have that one talent man who takes his talent. And he goes and he buries it in the ground, and when he is called to account to give a reckoning for how he has utilized those goods, what does the master tell him? Thou wicked and slothful servant. What is his response? I knew that you were a hard man, and you gathered where you didn't sow. This is not that kind of hiding. This is the idea that he wants it so bad that he's going to hide it to make sure no one else finds it so that he has just that amount of time to go and sell all that he has and buy that field. What is the disposition though of this individual? I think about this man, and, and I am reminded of several individuals that I know personally, who have never given one wit or one thought about religion, about Christianity, and about what it means to be a child of God. And then all of a sudden, one day, it clicks. And they understand. And they find and they realize the truth of the Gospel. And what happens? You cannot keep them from responding to the Gospel at that point. They've come across the truth as it is in Christ, and now they don't want to change. They want to go forward in their walk with God. So they do everything they can, almost in this zealous joy, to respond to what they know is right. Now this man is not at all interested in treasure hunting necessarily, but he does stumble across this cash of great value. So because he realizes the benefit of it, he goes and he hides it. Now, probably in the same field again, so that when he purchases that, it becomes his own. Jewish law said that if there were coins found in the soil of a field, after the purchase, those coins belonged to the man who bought the field. Anything that was in that field after it was sold belonged to the individual who acquired it. So again, this is not a dishonest gain. This is a man going to buy that which he knows and desires to possess because it is of great value. These people typically are not concerned with spiritual matters, but they're again blessed to happen upon the truth of the Gospel. Um, when it's presented to them, they hear it as it is in truth and they respond. Now they have that good part which is not taken away at all, and they realize its value and worth. And because now that they know, they do all that's in their power to hang on to it. Now, the joy of finding this unlooked for treasure, again, is expressed in their actions to keep it. The man hides the treasure so that he knows where to come back and look for it. And there is the fear that the blessings of that treasure might be taken away if he doesn't act immediately. And so you have the anticipation, maybe the earnestness there, of buying that field quickly so that he can possess it. I think about individuals in the New Testament, though, who find and come across Christ when they were not seeking Him necessarily. My mind goes back to Nathaniel in John 1 and verse 46, and he says, can there... Any good thing come out of Nazareth when it's told to him that we found the Christ, the Messiah? What is his estimation of the things that come out of Nazareth? Nothing good. And what does Jesus say when he sees Nathaniel, the whole in Israelite in whom there is no guile? He realizes who the Christ is. He's found him. You might fast forward into John chapter 4 the woman at the well at Samaria. She goes out to draw water. She has this chance encounter with the Christ who is there waiting. We might say that He intended to meet her. But she goes out to draw the water and He begins to have a dialogue with her. And how does that end? It ends with them staying three days in Samaria, but with her running back to the town of which she's really not a good part of, and telling everyone about what she has found. Not because she was looking for it. Not because she was earnestly seeking it. Because she recognized it when she came upon it. I believe that there is within us, within every one of us, the ability to recognize those things that are valuable, that are meaningful. We might ask those in the world if they care about their relationships with their family. And some of them, in earnest, will say absolutely yes. Those are the most important things they have. But they see the value of love, of care of some of those intangibles that a lot of people don't see. And then when they're presented with the truth as it is in Christ, they again attach themselves to it. They take hold on it, and they want to keep it, and they desire to have it. But there must have been initially within them a desire and a love for the truth to begin with. We know that Paul would contrast those who don't care at all about living righteously or godly in this present world. They don't care about the natural world or as God has set it up. In Romans chapter 1, they don't care about what order God has ordained. You see, all the previous possessions, by the way, of this man are worthless in contrast to what he sells it to get it for. Has there ever been something that you were willing to sell everything that you had to purchase? Think about the woman with the issue of blood and the miracle that is wrought on her. But how the Bible tells us that she gave up so much of her while She spent all of her money to recover what? Her health. Do you know those people who are willing to give everything they have to recover that health? What about the parent that wants to do everything they can to receive that child again? Or what about the spouse who's lost their significant other. In a tragic way, what would they give to re- receive them back? But Here this man sees the value of what is in the field and sells everything that he has to possess it. Augustine, writing in the 5th century, had this remark concerning his conversion to Christ. Uh, he said, "...how sweet did it at once become to me to want the sweetness of those toys." And when, what I feared to be parted from was now a joy to be parted with. When we really understand the right perspective, that's heaven's perspective, then the things of this life matter not. We might look at First Peter chapter one. Um, I am nearsighted, I will be nearsighted the rest of my life. If I were to take my contacts out, I could not see the faces of those individuals in the back of this room. Peter tells us that he that lacks these things is blind or short-sighted and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged of his old sins. See, it's one thing to be physically nearsighted. sighted only see things that are right in front of us. But to have the spiritual long-sight or farsightedness to see the things that await us in heaven... Is a drastically different perspective that the world does not understand. If you and I value or esteem those things of God, then you and I have the right perspective. We would be willing to sell all that we had, all of our possessions, to acquire the greatest good for us, and that is an eternity with God. Apostle Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7 But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless. And I count all things but lost for the excellency of knowledge of Christ. You think about what he was willing to endure to have Christ. He was willing to give up his pedigree. Everything that he was groomed to be, he found it to be worthless when it came to the joy of living for Christ. The Gentiles also here figure prominently in this discussion of not necessarily seeking but finding these things, because they were stumbling around in even the daylight, but Paul would say in the darkness, and they didn't find anything profitable. They didn't ever come to an understanding of God or the blessings of Christ. What happened? They needed to have the gospel preached to them. Paul would say in Ephesians 2 and verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were afar off are made near or brought nigh by the blood of Christ. You see, they were outside. They were stumbling around in the darkness and they had the ability to have the Gospel preached to them and respond. Not all the Gentiles sought after God, but they were able to find Him through the preaching of those early Christians to bring that message to a lost and dying world. And when they found him, they held on. Then we have verses 45 and 46. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now here's a contrast. You might think these are the exact same. But they're not. The first one, you have a man who's not really looking out for spiritual things. He's not seeking the good or the best. He upon it, and when he sees it, he is able to recognize it for what it is. And there is that value and estimation there. But now look at this man in his disposition. This is the guy who is seeking for the good, the best, I want to know. We might know these people. They're religious they're zealous. They're on fire for what appears to be God. And yet, they can be misguided. You might think of Colossians chapter 2, where Paul would tell us, beware lest any man spoil you, that is, rob you, through philosophy or vain deceit, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. I recall all of those individuals from early centuries at the rise of, of the great Greek culture, You have Socrates and Plato and Aristotle who are looking for the best. What is the best merit for godly conduct? Or really not godly conduct, but honorable conduct. And is there any benefit to it at all? And you know what the end result of every line of reasoning is as they conclude their philosophical discussions? None of it really matters because even in death, honor means nothing. That is arete, that highest good that a man might attain in Greek society or culture. It matters not. Because he's dead, he can't enjoy it. We think about how they went round and round and round looking for those things. And we fast forward to Acts chapter 17 where Paul goes to the Areopagus to preach. Really to the philosophical elite there. He says certain of the Epicureans and Stoics were there and wanted to hear some new thing. It goes up and he preaches to them Christ. And they laugh him out of town. Albeit a few clung to him as the text tells us. These are those individuals though that are seeking it sincerely. And there's a difference. Because what happens when they find it, this is that individual who when he has found one pearl of great price, that is the Gospel, he sells all that he has and buys it. To acquire the greatest good what would we be willing to give up you see when he finds it he knows that he has to get rid of everything that he has in order to purchase that which is of greatest value the thing which we seek after ultimately of the greatest value and the greatest worth is that of jesus the christ his redemptive work wrought in the joy and closeness it brings us helps us have a relationship with the God of heaven. And there is no greater joy than finding the Gospel of Christ. An analogy I suppose might be supplied to these figures or at least the general dispositions in these two parables is out of the contrast again of and Gentile. Here you look at the Gentiles who are outside of Christ. They don't know that there's necessarily a Messiah that is to come in the world. They haven't heard. Maybe the prophets have that have joined themselves to the synagogue in the various locales uh, where societies have risen up, but the general populace know, doesn't know that God is going to send His Christ. And yet, that message is preached, and upon hearing it, they respond overwhelmingly to the truth. And they grasp onto it. And then you have beside them the Jews who were earnestly seeking the Messiah, looking for the Christ, the One that should come, and albeit some did respond, But what happened? They refused to give up those things that they cared about to accept Jesus the Christ as the Messiah. In fact, Caiaphas would say as much. It's needful that one die rather than the whole nation perish. Let's keep the status quo and send Him to the cross. They refused to give up those things. How often do people refuse to give up the things that hinder us from seeing who Christ is and from being what God would have us to be. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 10, where the Apostle Paul there says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record, for they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. See, even when Paul writes those words... They have yet refused to accept the Christ. That is, in mass. Individuals do. We know there are many Jews who convert. But on the whole, they refuse to accept Christ and give up those things that stand in their way between them and Him. But here's the thing. You and I have the ability to do the same. What is the point of these two parables? The primary application that we have here is that you and I have a responsibility to make sure that we are doing all that we can in order to ensure our soul's salvation. We might hear the words, I surrender all. What is it that stands in the way of our relationship with the God of heaven? And what have we put as our inestimable treasure? Is it the things of this world? Or is it the eternal things that God wants us to focus on? Because after these two parables there is another scene that arises. Continue reading. Look at what he says. <clears throat> Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world, the angel shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing the dragnet here catches every person who has ever lived and is amenable to the law of God. Matthew 19 and verse 21 Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, that is, the rich young ruler, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What was he telling him? Give up those things that prevent you from being what I've asked you to do and be. Those things that hinder you, that you stumble over in your walk. let them go. Because I guarantee you this, nothing in this life is as valuable as the next. Nothing in this life is worth giving up eternity for. And Jesus wants them to be certainly clear that the value or the worth is greater than any possession that we could have on this earth. Not only that, our soul is of unbelievable worth to the God of heaven. Jesus would say in Matthew 16, verse 26, What shall a man be profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Here's the thing, Jesus gave up everything for you when He humbled Himself in Philippians 2. He emptied Himself, took upon Himself the form of a servant, the Bible tells us, and was found in fashion as a man. But He did that and went to the cross for you and me. Because he believed that you and I were worth it. And here's the catch. Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he has not already done. The Bible will tell us in Hebrews chapter 5, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all who obey him. Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians, You are not your own, you are bought with a price there is that unbelievable worth that God has placed upon us and the blood of His Christ so that you and I could have a relationship with Him. You might think of Second Corinthians 8 and verse 9 where Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He were rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might be made rich. See we have the blessing of a God who loves us so much he was willing to empty himself and come to earth for you and me. And the things of this life that seem so trivial at times folks are unwilling to give up for eternity. I've often wondered why Paul would tell us let this mind be in you, this disposition, this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation, took upon Him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I think about the treasure that you and I have on this earth. And we are blessed to live in a country where we have a great material gain. No one would argue that. But are we allowing things in this life to keep us from committing fully to the God of heaven? The question I want to ask tonight is what are you willing to give up to have Christ? Because God and the adversary will not live in a duplex in your heart. It will not share it. It won't happen. We've got to get rid of those things that stand in the way of our relationship with God that hinder us in our walk. Put Him first. Are we willing to sell all that we have to acquire that pearl of great price? To acquire that hid treasure? See, that hid treasure is the knowledge of the gospel and the joy that we find in knowing that we can have a home in heaven with Him one day through the remission of sins that is offered through His blood. If you realize tonight that you have not responded to that gospel call, you've not put Christ on an immersion, you've not had your sins remissed, we offer you that opportunity to make that right tonight if you have that need. If you realize that you've let things of this life hinder you in your walk with God, get in your way, defeat you at every turn and every point, I want to encourage you to make those things right tonight if you have that need, don't leave here without doing so. If you have any need tonight, won't you come as we stand and sing our song of encouragement?